This is the Monday, August 17th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Standing alone, I saw Georgie Cone somewhere on Long Acre Square. Crowds passed him by, I heard Georgie sigh, nobody noticed him there. I asked him why he didn't smile, he said in that old Cohen style, Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and you're listening to The History Author Show on iHeartRadio. You're familiar with our theme song, 1925's New York Ain't New York Anymore, and it's the perfect segue into today's book. It's called Supreme City, How Jazz Age Manhattan Gave Birth to Modern America. This story of speakeasies, flappers, and the birth of radio is brought to us by Donald L. Miller. He's the John Henry McCracken Professor of History at Lafayette College, and also authored, among his other books, City of the Century, the Epic of Chicago and the Making of America. You can learn about these and his other projects at donaldmillerbooks.com. And while you're there, take a spin around Jazz Age Manhattan on the interactive map he has. If you have an eye for history, or an ear for history, and you do, or else why would you be here, you'll run into a lot of old friends reading Supreme City. Names that still generate excitement and nods of recognition 100 years later. Names like Babe Ruth, Jack Dempsey, Tex Rickard, E.B. White, Elizabeth Arden. Some are so legendary they go by one name. Ziegfeld, Chrysler, LaGuardia, Lindbergh, Sarnoff. But how did New York City get from there to here? How did it become, as Duke Ellington called it, the capital of everything? It was my great pleasure to explore that question with Donald Miller when we talked. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. I'm joined on the line by the author of Supreme Cine, Donald Miller. Thank you for making the time with me today. It's a pleasure. Now, writers tend to view New York City as a living, breathing character. At least I know I do. And so I wanted to know what you thought when you first felt that urge to write the book. Like I was thinking about the cover of the book and I loved it from when I saw that. And I felt like I would be letting Gotham city down if I didn't buy this (laughs) book and put it on my shelf. And so that's what made me pick it up. And that made me wonder if something similar drove you to write it. It did. Um, I know New York pretty well. I've, you know, lived around New York and taught, you know, right in the heart of New York at the graduate center uh, near 42nd street and then fifth. And, I found my way through this book, into this book, you know, in the same way I did my Chicago book, by uh, observing what my old mentor, Louis Mumford, said, vivendo dissimus, by living we learn, you know, walking around the city and experiencing the buildings. And, uh, and uh, you know, I wanted to find out more about, you know, the people behind the buildings. And uh, oftentimes I did that by going into the lobby. I walked into the lobby, for example, of a building called the, um, the Channon Building, and uh, it was spectacular. And I'd never heard of the guy who built it, Fred French. And, uh, and then I remembered that, well, wait a minute, I, I remember a line from uh, Don DeLillo's novel, Underworld, where he has two characters go into the lobby of the Fred French building, and the mother says to the daughter, who in the world is Fred French? And I discovered he's the guy who threw up this terrific, the first terrifically tall skyscraper north of uh, 42nd Street. So finding out about these 
unknown people, uh, people who are less known, Walter Chrysler, for example, everybody knows the Chrysler building. Um, people at Simon & Schuster, some two or three of them didn't even know that there was a person called Walter Chrysler. They knew the Chrysler car, the Chrysler building. Right. So, but, you know, and, and again, um, the uh, Irwin Channon, who built the Channon building right across from Grand Central Terminal, you know, I mean, you walk in there and the whole lobby is dedicated to this, this theme called City of Opportunity. And then I learned a little bit about Irwin Channon and uh, wrote, a, wrote a chapter on him. And he was broke in 1919, a, a World War I vet and uh, living in Bensonhurst and uh, throwing up a house with his brother. You know, they just got into the con- contracting business. And nine years later, he's a multimillionaire, and, and the New Yorkers calling him master of the New York skyline. And this lobby is dedicated to that whole thing. How does a person like this, a Ukrainian son of Ukrainian immigrants, make it in a city like this? And uh, so getting down on the on the ground and, and, and seeing it like that, and it, it's how I write my World War II books from the GI's perspective, you know, from the Foxhole perspective. And I wanted to tell a story, too, about a New York that nobody knew about. I mean, I thought I knew what there was to be known about New York, all the important things. And what thrills me is when readers write in and say, I'm a born and bred New Yorker, read 100 books in New York, and I discovered a new New York in your book. I see these buildings in a new way. And that lights the light for me. I mean, that's exactly what I try to do in my book. That was great, the French building specifically. I mentioned in our first episode that I worked in the building next door, and I'd never looked up. And you know, being a New Yorker, you you don't look up. You know someone's a tourist when they look up. My dad told me that when he took me to South Street Seaport. And when I was a kid, he said, you could tell you're all tourists because you're looking up. I was just told the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, sure. There's a different world. And I looked out the window when I was at the building next door, and I said, my first reaction was, why did they bother, which is a silly reaction. Who did they think would see this? And then I remembered, well, this was here before everything around it kind of dwarfed the Valley of Giants, as they called it, the Chrysler Building. That's yeah. on the cover of the book and that you were talking about. And those really was the dawn of the skyscraper. It's like this adolescent city. I, I love that metaphor, growing in steel. It's a growth spurt in steel. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's... I dealt with another, what I call sudden city, in you know, my book on Chicago, and mid-Manhattan is a sudden city. Uh, in 1917, there was no skyscraper uh, north of 42nd Street, and yet after World War One, you have this sudden and spectacular building boom, and it's um, they're putting up a building every 57 seconds in Midtown. Wow. By 1929, I mean, they've got more skyscrapers in Midtown uh, than they do in, in, in lower Manhattan. Uh, which was always the skyscraper center of the world up to that point. Um, so this thing came out of nowhere, you know, and Central Park was there, yeah, the Vanderbilt mansions, but as a commercial and center, uh, as a skyscraper center, as a cultural center for the new kind of culture with jazz and radio and everything, that was born in Midtown. And so I try to tell the story of both the building boom, which starts with um, the completion of Grand Central Terminal. That's the real... That you know, Keystone Project of the area, and I try to tell the the story of the cultural revolution that accompanied this construction and building boom. Yeah, I wanted to start on one corner, which I made a point to walk by yesterday. I guess just to make myself nostalgic and also mad. But it's the corner of Fiftieth Street and Seventh Avenue where there's a TGI Fridays now, sort of 
pasted over the facade. It's, if you, it's like, to me, if you see somebody very dignified in their youth and then all of a sudden you found them wearing an I'm with stupid t-shirt and you'd say, why? Why are you wearing that? They look so embarrassed. But that building was the Roxy Theater back in the day. It was a larger building, of course. It was grander. And so I wanted to ask you, what did the Roxy and its founders mean to the Jazz Age? Because you talk about it in the book. Yeah, I mean... Um uh, Roxy Rothafel, I mean, he, he comes out of nowhere. He's the son of a shoemaker, Jewish shoemaker in Minnesota, a Marine Corps drill sergeant, you know, stationed in China, goes back to New York, gets a job selling magazines in the Pennsylvania coal regions and goes into the um, a, a bar looking for a hot dog. He loved hot dogs and falls in love at his first sight with the bartender and the owner's daughter. And uh, he said, the owner says, well, you got to stay a while, you know, if, if you're going to court my daughter. And he noticed that there was an empty um, room in the back and uh, they used it for, for parties. And uh, it's, a, it's a Slavic community, uh, you know, hard coal and all that. And, and Roxy turns it into his own movie theater. He walks to Scranton, Pennsylvania in the snow, gets, you know, two reels, puts them together, rents a projector, hangs a sheet, you know, uh, has someone play a piano, gets gets his uh, chairs from the funeral home. That's a problem because if somebody dies, <laughs> you yeah. don't have a you don't have a movie that night. Well, four years later, uh, he's brought to New York. He brings big movie culture to New York City. There were never enough people to fill all these tremendously big theaters they were building in Midtown Manhattan in the 1920s. And so they had this thing called a prologue, and they had everything in the prologue, animal acts, clog dancers, circus acts, opera, ballet, and the prologue often lasted longer than the movie. And sometimes Roxy would um, stand behind the scenes and, and describe what's happening in the prologue, and people love that. And um, radio asked him to go in the air, and he had the first you know, um, talk show, and uh, he had He'd bring on the guests from the show, and he's the biggest hit in radio. And later on, um, he's uh, NBC, David Sarnoff's network, which was founded in 1927, picks him up, and he's the biggest thing in radio. And so he brings movies into the heart of Midtown Manhattan. Now, understand, it was lined with legitimate theaters and, uh, and big, you know, eating spots like Delmonico's and things like that. Well, they go out of business with prohibition. They, they can't support themselves in places like Delmonico's. And the legitimate theaters are driven off Times Square by these cyclopean, gigantic movie theaters like the original Roxy, which was right there in the Times Square area. And, uh, you could, it could seat five, six thousand people. And, uh, one critic, you know, kind of, jabs him in the ribs and says, this is the biggest theater since the fall of Rome. And everyone thought it was kind of kitschy and things like that. But Roxy appealed to steam fitters from Brooklyn and their wives, and they could go in there for a dollar and, and be treated like rajahs by the, you know, this team of well-drilled ushers. And, and it was a spectacular, you know, afternoon, a spectacular evening. And you could put on four or five shows a day going well into the early morning hours. And with legitimate theater, you got, you know, maybe an afternoon matinee and an evening show in a theater of 600. They can't compete. The real estate costs are too high. So they're driven where they are today, off to the side streets. So a lot of what Manhattan looks like today, a lot of it was, you know, the result of, of, of things that happened in the 1920s. I mean, the 20s is the real shaping force. I mean, Fifth Avenue, that was all Vanderbilt mansions. They called it Vanderbilt Alley, one after the other, from 42nd Street right to Central Park. 1920s, 
young Jewish real estate agents came in there, bought out all the Vanderbilt mansions, including the largest urban residence in the world, which is located right across from the park now. And they put up commercial buildings like Saks Fifth Avenue. And um, beauty uh, entrepreneurs come in there, like Helena Rubinstein, Elizabeth Arden, and established their studios there. So the whole avenue, the whole look of the place changes dramatically, dramatically. Yeah, I was thinking when you were talking about the skyline, that you look at the map or the skyline or the image or graphic of the skyline, and I think of somebody leaving the city, because you might leave for five years or however many, and yeah. coming back, and it would just be an amazing boom. It really changed the face of it. Like you said, well, suddenly all this is in Midtown, and people are coming, and it's just such an incredible period of change and innovation in everything. I was thinking of some of these figures. Another one I wanted to mention is Tex Rickard, because every now and then somebody will ask, how did the New York Rangers, you know, a team in Broadway, how did they get the name Rangers? It doesn't sound like a very New York name. And it was because of this Tex, but he brought, he really squeezed his way into the hockey business, but his more enduring legacy is boxing. Radio and Rickard managed to really promote it and change how we look at it today. So tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, Tex Rickard, you know, team, first of all, Tex is, you know, was a Texas Ranger. And uh, he was a sheriff in a small Texas town and picked up that name. And um, after his wife died at a very early age of childbirth, he, um, he goes to the uh, Alaskan and, and uh, Canadian Klondike and uh, opens the largest uh, barroom in the world and gambling joint and then gets into the boxing business out in the West. And then boxing matches were male-only affairs. And some of them were held on river barges. Some of them were held, you know, in stockades. And um, what Rickard does is he... He, if you can believe this, gentrifies boxing. He gentrifies the crowd. He appeals to the female element. And um, he, there's a big fight where his meal ticket really is Jack Dempsey, another Westerner, you know, from, from the, you know, the uh, silver mines of uh, Colorado. And Dempsey was uh, a nothing when, when Rickard picked him up and uh, built him up. And, and he became, had a killer right in and, and, and becomes eventually, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world, the most popular athlete in the 1920s. And what Rickard does is he turns boxing into a mass spectator sport. Now, that, that phenomenon, mass spectator sports, had never existed before. You get 14,000 people to a baseball game, 600 people to a boxing match, but all of a sudden 57,000 people, 60,000 people going to see Babe Ruth, 110,000 people going down to Philadelphia or out to Chicago to see Dempsey fight Jack Dunney. But women now all of a sudden are part of the crowd. Uh, he, he appealed to the uh, millionaire crowd, to the Morgans. The great Corsair, J.P. Morgan, his daughter Ann Morgan, was a uh, single woman living in New York City, and uh, she was involved in a multitude of charities. And Rickard would hold these gigantic charity events at the hockey, you know, at the hockey arena, at the boxing arenas. And he buys Madison Square Garden, which was then on 7th Avenue. And, uh, and turns it into the boxing mecca in the country. So all of a sudden, boxing is a bigger sport, actually, in the 1920s than baseball. And Dempsey, rather than Babe Ruth, is the highest-paid athlete in the 1920s. There were $5 million gates in the 1920s in boxing matches, and um, all of them were, were record fights, and all of them involved Dempsey. You were talking about sort of the, I guess you would say, 
democratization of entertainment to yeah. <laughs> run to a place like the Roxy or being able to go out and, and have a night on the town. And you had a great line about Babe Ruth in the book. You said that there were welders in Weehawken that could find better specimens of manhood by looking up from their beer. And I thought of compare our celebrities today with TV, where the image is so important, to those in the jazz age with radio. Yeah. Well, Babe Ruth had a radio face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you didn't have to have that. Of course, there were newsreels and things like that, but uh, that doesn't, uh, all of a sudden, that doesn't matter that much. Although it starts to change with, um, you know, with the advent of silent and then, you know, uh, sound movies, which are invented, of course, in New York City in 1927 as the first, you know, talking movie. You talked about the democratization of culture. I mean, look at nightclubs. There are more places dispensing alcohol publicly in New York City, albeit against the law, during Prohibition than there are before Prohibition. And what happens is the nightclub replaces a saloon. And saloons were all-male provinces. They didn't even have seats usually. They were stand-up places and uh, places you stop after work to have a so-called bracer. But with nightclubs, they're democratic. Women come. They come without escorts. Uh, They come in groups. There you could meet a gangster a baseball player, a businessman, you know. That's great. I love that. A, a Babbitt from Minnesota. Anybody <laughs> pays admission. It's open to you. And so on with baseball games and so on with movie theaters. And New York sends this message out to the country that this is something new. I mean, you buy a radio set, you turn it on, and, and you're in Omaha, and you got New York. you got Duke Ellington playing from the Cotton Club on CBS radio. Yeah. And so the music of the country, the music of New York becomes the music of the country. Hot jazz. Uh, Ellington called it Negro folk music. Paley saw Ellington play at the Cotton Club up in Harlem, which is owned by a gangster named Oni Madden, who was a big controlling influence on Midtown. And he puts him on the radio. And that's when the Duke really made it. And all of a sudden, he's touring internationally, and people are comparing him as a composer of Mozart. Hmm. So radio, you don't pay for it. A guy actually wrote into CBS and said, who do I pay for this? (laughs) It's coming to me free. Music, sports, everything else, Dempsey Tunney fights. I don't know. Well, it's an industry, the first industry in the history of the world paid for by advertising entirely. So it's a new world. (laughs) It really was, not it? And you could see through the radio, I think when you talk about boxing, my visualization of it is the old I Love Lucy when Fred and Ricky would get together, usually TV, but sometimes all the radio was all they could get for a fight yeah and they would they would really get into it of course they were doing comedy but still that was really something for you to gather around a radio and experience and have someone tell you what was going on it gave birth to the radio star which we hadn't had before and and that to talk to millions at once with your voice is just an amazing thing for them yeah it was and the thing doesn't exist in 1917 i mean there's radio and ship ship to shore communication but David Sarnoff, you know, this immigrant from Minsk, never saw a locomotive, uh, never saw an automobile until he came to America. He arrives here around, you know, around 1914, and by 1927, he has the largest radio network, a national network, NBC in the world. And the next year, Paley, Bill Paley, comes into town from Philadelphia, Philadelphia Playboy with came from a family that had a, made a fortune in the cigar business, and he opened CBS, and, and hammer and tong, they're at it. Into the 19, early 1960s, uh, television comes out of that, all the polling that's done on television, you know, um, 
the rating systems, everything comes out of that. And then television's invented in the 1920s, in 1927. It's postage stamp type pictures you're seeing, but there it is. And Sarnoff would later unveil television at the New York World's Fair in the late 1930s. New York's a tremendous center because you have so many people coming in trying to make it from all over the world, from west of the Hudson, east of the Danube. They're congregating in New York. And in my book, I have about 31 characters. Almost all of them are outsiders. And it's these outsiders who come into New York, plant their flag, and transform the city. And, and that wasn't an easy thing to do. Even Jack Dempsey um, came to the city with Rickard, without Rickard, I should say, earlier in the century, and he didn't make it. He got his clock cleaned at a couple of fights, you know, up in Harlem, and uh, uh, he's broke and he has to go back to Colorado. Well, he, he has a great line in his autobiography. He said, you might want New York, but, but does New York want you? He said, that's, <laughs> that's what it's all about. Yeah, and New York welcomed these people. I mean, you had to put entertainment on radio. You had to put something on radio. If you could put a radio box in somebody's house, you had to put entertainment on it. So Sarno puts on the first, you know, that big Dempsey-Carpentier fight that I mentioned in 1923. And uh, they start putting the World Series and regular baseball games out on the radio as well. And entertainment. So there was all the entertainment in vaudeville. And uh, or, or Tin Pan Alley, just off Times Square. So you get young acts, you know, from there, like comedian Jack Benny, crooner Bing Crosby. They're on the radio, and that's how they make it. That's how they make it. We're speaking with author Don Miller. Again, check out donaldmillerbooks.com for his many projects, including Masters of the Air, which inspired the upcoming HBO miniseries produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. The book on our laps today is Supreme City, How Jazz Age Manhattan Gave Birth to Modern America. And you were mentioning Philadelphia there a minute ago and all the people funneling into New York to Jazz Age projects that helped that happen from the West is the Holland Tunnel is one and the George Washington Bridge another. And the Philadelphia Inquirer called your book, quote, a splendid account of the construction boom in midtown Manhattan between World War I and the Great Depression and the transformation of transportation, communications, publishing, sports, and fashion that accompanied it. And I complimented you on getting a Philly newspaper to compliment New York City, which is not easy. And <laughs> I said the you have the subhead of the book that states the boost gave birth to modern America. So tell the listeners, how do these other cities, other than people physically moving here to New York, how do other cities in America start looking to New York and revolutionizing and following the lead? Well, New York's a magazine center and um, the, uh, the newspaper center. Though the New York Times is, is primarily a, a, a regional newspaper at the time. The, the Daily News is selling outside New York, but magazines like the New Yorker go out to the rest of the country. And, and there it is, the New York nightlife, the New York style, uh, the New York culture, you know, with uh, wonderful, wonderful articles about the night scene, the nightclub scene, the fashion scene in New York City. Uh, radio itself, as I mentioned, is another way New York starts to transmit its culture to the country. The Broadway shows go on the road, you know, shows like Showboat, um, great show put on by uh, Florence Ziegfeld in 1927. That changed American theater. It deals with a racial theme that had never been dealt with before, and an explosive one, miscegenation. The songs came right out of the dialogue. They were beautifully, beautifully melded. 
And it was an absolute sensation. And Ziegfeld had five of those big hits. No one's ever done that in one Broadway season. So that's another way New York culture becomes a culture of the country. Even its engineers, I mean, they're reading the engineering magazines. You take Clifford Holland. I always came into New York, you know, one of two ways, you know, the Lincoln or the Holland Tunnel. And I never associated the Holland Tunnel with Clifford Holland, who's an engineer from Massachusetts, you know, comes right out of MIT down in New York, starts working on the subway systems and tunnels, and, no, and, 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 and learns that they're going to build the first vehicular tunnel, the first tunnel for cars and trucks in the world. Um, we know how to tunnel before then, you know, the Penn Central, the trains came in and tunneled, but what we didn't know how to do is remove the carbon monoxide uh, from these tunnels and how do you create a ventilation system. They said, well, we'll put big fans in there and blow the gas out. But if you had a fire, you could create a tornado of flame in a place (laughs) like that. So what he does, if you come in to New York, you'll notice that in the river on land, there are four giant structures, three square structures. They're actually wind machines. They're like Venetian blinds. The blinds open up, they catch the wind. The generators speed it up. And then they shoot the wind into the tunnel, and it comes out at hubcap level, and it's fresh air. It's changed every 90 seconds, and the bad air is sucked out through the ceiling vents. And in that way, the air is as clean as it is outside the tunnel. And every tunnel in the world, since Holland completed this tunnel in 1927, which is the same year they start building the GW Bridge, every tunnel in the world, Lincoln, etc., is based on the technology that Clifford Holland developed. And tragically, he died during the construction, and they decided to name it after him. Yeah, look, definitely, when you cross, especially on the ferry, I know, again, when I was younger, we'd go across, and I remember the first time that my father pointed those out to me, and he said, those are the lungs of the Lincoln Tunnel. And that was something that always stuck in my head, and I always look for it. Again, it's so easy to miss, you wouldn't know what it was. Yeah. That was a great innovation at the time, and that was the they solved so many amazing problems, by the way. Like the sandhogs when they dug those Penn Station tubes, you were talking. Yeah, about. yeah. It was hard to do, and they just went at it and they did it. And a lot of them died in the process. So also uh, Roebling, when you talk about the yeah. Brooklyn Bridge, of course these were challenges, and some of them gave their lives to make them. It wasn't all getting <laughs> things named after you. Like Colin was a young man at the time, wasn't he? That's so. exactly right. And in my book, I try to tell about the, not just the entrepreneurs who threw up these skyscrapers, but the people who built them. I talk about dockyard workers and Italian garment workers on 7th Avenue, Fashion Avenue, and the Sky Boys, the guys who went up on the steel frames of the skyscrapers. And, of course, you you hang a skyscraper from a steel frame, and these steel frames are going up with tremendous rapidity in Midtown. And this is urban theater. People would come with binoculars and watch these, to them were ant-like figures, you know, operating up there where the birds don't fly. And they're up there without hard hats, without safety harnesses. <laughs> and one of these guys is killed every 33 hours. Uh, you know, Amazing. I talked to a Mohawk Indian who, was, who worked on the Channon building, and he said, you know, we don't die, we're killed. And a lot of these buildings, the steel frames were constructed by Mohawks from Canada, from around St. Lawrence River, where they helped build bridges and then came down to New York. And they followed the skyscraper revolution all across the country, going to places like Chicago and Cleveland and building buildings like that. But that's the story, too, of New York. You know, like you say, the sandhogs, the, the dock workers, no occupation in the country, you know, the possibility of fishing, believe it or not. 
that's as dangerous as working on the docks in New York City. So I take you down there, right to the docks themselves, and talk about the uh, the plight of the workers. You know, uh, it's kind of my on the waterfront scene. You know, and there was a lot of new things going on at the time and that's one thing it's if you shoved someone up on a building today and said go build a skyscraper they would expect to have safety harnesses and the like but these people are really creating a revolution they're the first ones to do it so you don't uh, there's all kinds of things you don't think of like at first and the technology just isn't there and so a lot of it is they're pioneers in the sky and they're building it or under the hudson river in the bed there and uh, one thing about supreme city is you have a lot of photographs of these people and of these times. Yeah. And my favorite one is Mayor Jimmy Walker. Oh, yeah. Pinky right. ring, tailored suit, squinting to one side with an impish grin, boater hat. His hand is stuffed in his pocket. And every time I look at it, I wonder what he has in there. Flask, maybe the roll of singles to you know, <laughs> tip, tip the voters. I, I, I want to know. But I noted reading Supreme City that he was late all the time. And that's a big knock on our current mayor, Bill de Blasio. Yeah. Yet, unlike de Blasio, Walker got away with it. So, oh, he came late in style. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I, I I love that one when he shows up hours late for a Jewish event and he just grabs a yarmulke and puts it on before he jumps on stage and they just go wild and all is forgiven. And so I, I wanted to put you on the spot and ask what de Blasio could learn from Jimmy's style of leadership <laughs> and if you've sent de Blasio a book. No, I haven't sent de Blasio a book, but he's pretty stiff and... Uh, he could learn a lot from Walker. Uh, you know, Walker, of course, was besotted by corruption. It was never a, a case of somebody buying Jimmy Walker and trying to get a project through by paying him off and things like that. Millionaires gathered around him, and they supported his lifestyle, which was baccalarian. I mean, he'd be in Miami two weeks here. He needed to be in Havana. He needed to go back to Ireland. With his wife, of course. With his wife, of course. <laughs> and then he left his mistress that time back in New York City. I mean, the church was all over him, you know. They visited him, you know, and he, they tried to get him to drop one of his mistresses, and he said, you go back and tell the Cardinal, and I know about four of his altar boys who are doing the same thing, you know. <laughs> and by that, he meant big businessmen who supported the church. Mm-hmm. You know, although they investigated him to the tip of his toe to his nose, never were able to get anything solid on the guy. He was never brought to court. I mean, there were inquiries and things and political pressure, mostly from Franklin Roosevelt, who was governor at the time and and needed a clean New York. That kind of pressure pushed Jimmy Walker off the stage. But de Blasio could learn a little bit from that. By the way, the great line he made, I I guess I can use this here, when he came late for that thing and someone said, Yamaka next, and he said, you know. It's circumcision, uh, right? Yeah, he said, well, what about circumcision? He said, no, madam, I prefer to wear it off, you know. (laughs) I'm glad you said it, because I I wanted to, but I thought it was... (laughs) Yeah, and and he was so quick. Yeah. He claimed he read less than a dozen books in his lifetime, and somehow got through law school, but he picked up everything through his ears. His age would come in, and they'd brief him, and then he'd go out when he was a state senator in Albany. People would crowd, pack the galleries just to see Jimmy Walker perform. Theater magnets would go up there and say, you know, if we had actors like this, we'd have better theater. He was fantastic. Uh, And he is the quintessence of New York. And he had a big soul. He really did. I mean, I try to, there's a lot of anecdotes about Walker, but what I hope I do in the book is turn the story of Walker into, you know, I use some analysis rather than anecdotes. And if you look at what he did, uh, he tried to end segregation in Tammany Hall. He brought women into the organization. He brought African Americans into the organization. He did a lot 
for the underprivileged in New York City, for people in Hell's Kitchen. He did a lot for people with mental problems and disabilities. And he was the spirit of New York. I mean, he, he's the one who I think best exemplifies the class, the style, the energy, the passion, and the creativity of New York City. He and the Chrysler Building. I love that building, you know. Oh, I do too. It symbolizes yeah. New York's style, its speed, its romantic excess, a big silver spire. That spire was in itself an, an innovation and a way to get ahead and sort of the spirit, something very much like yeah. Jimmy Walker would have had, hiding it inside so you could crank it up. Hiding it inside. I, yeah, awesome. they, they have a sky race. <laughs> Walter Chrysler wants to throw up the tallest building, the tallest structure, totally Eiffel Tower in the world. And he succeeds, but when he was finished, the building was smaller than another a competing building down at Forty Wall. I think it's the Trump building now. And all the papers announced that the uh, Forty Walls won the battle. But Walter Chrysler had his engineers build this silver spire inside the tower. And then one day they lifted it up through their 176 feet high, and all of a sudden it made the Chrysler building uh, the tallest structure in the world. But only for 11 months. Right. The Empire State Building was completed. That's a, I can't be beat kind of New York spirit, yeah. and Chrysler has it in, in Chrysler has it in abundance. By the way, you know we were talking about lobbies and you know and, and people who made New York. I mean, you walk into the lobby of the Chrysler Building, look up, and there's a great mural as you know on the wall, and it's dedicated to the workers who built modern New York, and mostly to the uh, to the workers who built the Chrysler Building. It's an Art Deco piece, and it's been recently cleaned. The lobby's rather spectacular, but look up there at Trumbull's you know, mural. It's, it is really emblematic of Chrysler's concern, actually. I mean, he, he wasn't the greatest guy in the world. He was a little overpowering and things like that. But when his construction crews were at work, he was the first one who provided them with safety harnesses, mandated hard hats mandated a number of safety precautions. And I think one guy, maybe, was killed in the construction of the Chrysler building. Wow, that I did not know. Yeah. I wanted to mention another character or character type from this era, but I wanted to leave him sort of towards the end because I think the gangsters in Prohibition sort of can overtake the whole period and you think it was gun battles on the street because we've all yeah, seen the movies. Yeah. And some of the big names in your book, again, the, the book is full of these stars and moments of aha recognition. And it's, then it's like meeting them for the first time because you haven't gotten the whole story really until you read about them in Supreme City, the way that you've done it and footnoted everything and gotten it in there. And I was thinking about how law enforcement, you kind of get the black and white vision because, again, we in this era are all raised on movies and books about it. But really the police, sort of going by what Jimmy Walker said, that the whole of the U.S. Army and Navy is not going to be able to make this a dry city because the bar culture that you talked about, which is very much alive today that isn't in a lot of other places – it is just never going to give up our drink. And so that was the thing. Like a lot of the law enforcement, they thought it, they saw it rather as just fulfilling a need for people. And they were in on it. And yeah. they didn't, it wasn't this black and white. Every cop was clean except a couple and others weren't. And I, I love that part of the book. I love, I love finding out I'm wrong about something in history or a little bit off. Yeah. Yeah. If you walk down the street in New York in, in 1928 and, uh, you know, you you wonder, you're looking for a speakeasy. You, you could ask a cop directions to a speakeasy, an illegal speakeasy. <laughs> <laughs> they got payoffs. They got free lunch there and a beer now and then and a Christmas gift. And that was the kind of protection that was provided. You know, no speakeasy owner was you know was big enough, powerful enough to control the New York police force. But New York decided early on in, in the Walker administration and even before that 
Governor Al Smith courageously came out against prohibition, and um, that they're not going to enforce prohibition. The feds could come in and do it, and they tried, but they're not going to get much cooperation, if any, from the New York police force. Yeah, Walker fought that bill to try to make New York enforce it, and he yes. Walker said it'll bankrupt the city, and that's another great moment of his where he brings that fellow in there on a stretcher to cast the deciding vote. Oh, he, yeah, he says, yeah. Jimmy, I'm dying, and he says to him, just keep breathing until you hear your name and <laughs> vote. <laughs> exactly. He needed one more vote. Yeah. He brought the guy from his, <laughs> off of his, almost off his deathbed from New York City on the train. He brought him to Albany to cast the deciding vote. Yeah, it's a great story. But the woman who did it, really, I mean, who would symbolize this is Texas Guinan with her nightclubs. I mean, she's a you know, nightclub entrepreneur, and she's a you know former silent film star, you know, of, you know, playing cowgirls, and uh, comes to New York, gets involved with some gangsters, opens a club, and becomes a hostess, and she's the you know, with Walker, I mean, she's the nighttime, he's the nighttime king and she's the nighttime queen in New York City. And she battled the feds, you know, hammer and tong. And complex woman, too. I mean, devout Roman Catholic, lots of priests in the family, didn't smoke, didn't drink, you know, would stop at mass, you know, for early morning mass after coming to a speakeasy, took care of her money. Uh, very, very shrewd. And you got all your gossip. Walter Winchell and all those reporters got all their gossip by sitting around talking to Texas. She's this brassy blonde, uh, peroxide blonde. She beat beat the feds again and again. They hauled her into court and they never got her. She's a fascinating character in the book, I think. Two other women, quickly, Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein, so people don't get the idea that it's just men in your book. No, it's filled with women. <laughs> and, and they changed New York in a major way. I mean, they invent of the modern movie business. I mean, here's Arden, daughter of a you know struggling Canadian farmer. Rubenstein is the uh, daughter of a struggling kerosene dealer in Krakow, Poland. And they come into New York roughly at the same time, and they build the modern business. Before this, if you painted your face, as it was called then, you you were either a movie star, you know, or you know you were a fast woman. And uh, now all of a sudden, people are seeing Clara Bow and people like that in close-ups of the movies with makeup in order to dramatize you know, their eyes and things like that. And it becomes fashionable. And they open beauty salons and create a beauty business. And more money is made on beauty products in 1927 than the entire country paid for electricity. Wow. These two women become, in today's terms, billionaires. And they have international beauty empires and salons that deal with everything every aspect of conditioning, even had fencing and whatever. So they and people like Hattie Carnegie in the dress business, they are powerful, independent women entrepreneurs. And there's a number of them. And the book's filled with women characters like Guinan and tough, hard-nosed, but at the same time, you know, transformative figures. Okay, you've given us a nice chunk of time. We could continue to talk and talk, but even speakeasies had a last call. So one final question for you. The New York Times said Supreme City, quote, is the work of an enthusiast and Miller's enthusiasm is catching, unquote. You drew your inspiration in part from E.B. White's description of Gotham as three cities, one to the native, one to the commuter, and yet another to the person like those you've been talking about who came to the city to make it big. So what do you hope Supreme City gives to each of those three New Yorkers? Well, I hope all of them see the city in the way that people of the 20s saw You have to remember this. If you describe New York as if characters know what's coming, 
the depression, then the whole book is slanted in that way. All this excess and everything like that leads to the depression. And they didn't know it. There's no such thing as a foreseeable future. It doesn't exist. The future isn't foreseeable. Everywhere in the 20s, it was blue skies for them. One day of prosperity following another. And I try to get behind the eyes of New Yorker and have them see the city that way. And I think if you read the book first, you can walk around New York and see it, you know, the way these people saw it as they built it. And remember that this thing just doesn't appear. It's built by human beings. There's flesh and blood and all those skyscrapers. And every one of those stones has a tongue, and every tongue tells a story. And so you can read back into the buildings to the, to the men behind them, put them up into the construction workers who threw up the steel frame, and so on. That's the kind of New York I want people to see. Because New York's a process. It's organic, and it's changing dramatically all the time. But the 20s really put its stamp on the city. And I think, as you point out beautifully, the cover of the book captures that, I think, very evocatively. In New York City is a verb. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> and when I read this book and I saw the cover and I said, if you could see New York for the first time, I mean, think about it. Even if you are that New Yorker who's from here or commuted and yeah. saw it across the river from New Jersey like I did my whole life, think about seeing it for the first time. And that's really what this book does. And I want to thank you so much for writing it. And I didn't want to say it, but I think you can call yourself a New Yorker if you don't have a copy of Supreme City on your bookshelf. But I'm not so sure. I think you have to have it there to call yourself a New Yorker. So thank uh, you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for joining the History Author Show today. Thank you, Dean. It was wonderful. Again, the book is Supreme City, How Jazz Age Manhattan Gave Birth to Modern America. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. We get a few sips of bathtub gin every time you do. Again, I want to thank Don for joining us and for sharing the story of the Jazz Age with citizens and fans of all three New York cities. Remember to check him out and take that tour of Manhattan back in the day at donaldmillerbooks.com. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next Monday morning when we publish another trip into the past here on IR Radio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, thank you. And if we could ask a little favor, take the time to leave a review for us and rate us. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening. And in honor of Supreme City, here's our theme song again from 1925. New York ain't New York anymore. Ain't it the truth? Happy reading, everybody. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east sign, west sign, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.